the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. A few weeks ago, after preaching on marriage and the prohibition of divorce, I came across a fitting article that I want to share with you, fitting because of our topic as well as the times that we live in. The topic was that marriage is good but can be trying and difficult, the times being a global pandemic. The article recounts a situation in a town in the north of the country of Italy. A man got into an argument with his wife and did the smart thing. He decided to cool down by going for a walk. Part of the reason this was newsworthy, because argument or going out for a walk is nothing noteworthy, it was newsworthy because it stems from the fact, like in many other parts of the world, Italy is undergoing a current COVID-related lockdown and curfew starting at 10 p.m. and ending at 5 a.m. And this man was actually found by the police walking to cool down after this argument with his wife at 2 in the morning, thus breaking curfew. He was fined 400 euro, which is about $485, and given a hotel room to stay in for the night. The police entered his information in uh, their computer database, and it was confirmed that his wife had actually reported him missing. See, here's the thing. Uh, He was given a hotel room not just because of the lateness of the hour, but because he couldn't go home. I mentioned that this was newsworthy partially because he had broken curfew, but really the most notable part of this article and this situation was the fact that by the time he was found by police... He had walked over 280 miles over the course of a week. 280 miles to cool down from an argument with his wife. So it doesn't really give the details of what the argument was about or what the situation was. I think the funniest line of the article was that the man was found tired but otherwise healthy. No kidding. And so what was the situation? We don't know. But for someone to walk 280 miles to cool down shows that perhaps the argument was really bad. He was very angry. Maybe the wife was particularly nasty. And it shows the difficulties in their marriage to the point that this man walked 280 miles for seven days. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about the benefits of singleness. On a side note, if you ever get in a fight with your spouse that's so bad that you are willing to walk 280 miles, I invite you to walk just a fraction of that to my home for some biblical counseling. Not joking. Well, 
as a backdrop of the challenges that you may face in marriage and will face in marriage this morning, we talk about the benefits of staying unmarried. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 28, picking up right where we left off prior to our Christmas service. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Follow along as I read verses 25 through 28. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. This morning, I want to give you five explanations for Paul's preference for singleness. We have seen already, we will see today, and we will see in a couple weeks that Paul clearly prefers singleness for believers. And this morning, we will go look at five explanations for Paul's preference for singleness. Obviously, there are other preferences that he has that we will see and have seen in other passages. But in these few verses, we will see five. The first explanation for Paul's preference for singleness is the apostolic disclaimer. The apostolic disclaimer. Look again at verse 25. Let me read that again. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Paul begins by telling us that he's going to address virgins, which refers to those who are not yet married. There's a lot of debate as to exactly what virgins refers to. Clearly, in a general uh, principle of the word, it refers to those who have never been married. And so, as he addresses later, later widows, you will see that there's a distinction between virgins and widows. Um, I believe that this uh, tends to speak more of women just because in the context we'll see that he addresses men and then with the same uh, terminology addresses virgins as a separate uh, category. But suffice it to say that he is referring to single men and women who have never been married and are still unmarried. And in the context, we will see that he clearly addresses both men and women. So although there are those uh, who are not virgins when they get married for the first time, much like when we saw that Paul assumes that no believer would marry an unbeliever willingly, so here he assumes that Christians who get married are virgins. This is not necessarily a condemnation on those who are not. And it's not that Paul is naive about the reality of sin and immorality, especially as this is the early church, and most, if not all, of the people he's addressing could not have been raised in Christian homes. Christianity is a new thing. But on a practical level, you could even say that this is the best course of action so as to not imply any allowances for premarital sex, nor 
to have to go down and address a dozen different rabbit trails and scenarios to all cover all the circumstances one may find themselves in when they get married. He's just going to stick to one, which is the assumption, the biblical way of singleness and marriage. So, suffice it to say that he, as we will see, is addressing all unmarried people, both male and female, even if they have had premarital sex. He goes on to explain that on this particular topic, he has no specific command from Jesus. We've seen him make this type of comment uh, statement before on this subject. The point is not that what he's saying is wrong or it shouldn't be in Scripture. He's simply saying he can't quote Jesus here because there's no command from Jesus to quote on this particular topic. That being said, he tells us that he's going to give us his opinion, but he clarifies that it is a trustworthy opinion in that it was by God's mercy that Paul has been called as an apostle and as one who is a steward of God's mysteries. The idea here in that word trustworthy is not so much in the sense of him being a faithful Christian or even a faithful worker for the Lord as much as it is in the trustworthiness of his judgment and wisdom as someone who has been called as an apostle. As we have seen in the like passages, there will be no command here, but there will be inspired, and that's very important, Spirit, Holy Spirit-inspired advice. And he even clarifies you're not in sin if you don't take this advice. But we have to understand that is, this is not just from Paul the man, this is from the Lord. Now, regardless of whether you take his advice to say stay single or not, you can follow his example in attributing any privilege of service that you have to the mercy of God. He says that I am trustworthy only by the mercy of God, not because I'm so smart, not because I've worked really hard, but because of the Lord's mercy. It is, Paul says, that only by God's mercy can he be who he is. This, of course, goes back not just to his calling as an apostle, but even his calling to salvation. And after that, any subsequent faithfulness to either of those callings is only by the mercy of God. And we would do well to remember, though that is not the point or really the the context of this passage, it is a very important side note that whatever we may do in our Christian life or in any sort of service, whether officially in the church or just one-on-one to other people in the world, we understand that it is a privilege granted us by the mercy of God. And anything we can do to glorify God, anything that we could deem as good biblically is because of the mercy of God. But to our point, the apostolic disclaimer is that what he is about to say is not a command or a requirement of the unmarried, of single people, but a godly spirit-inspired suggestion. So, the first explanation of Paul's preference for singleness is his own understanding of the wisdom that God has given him 
including the wisdom to know that this is not a command. Let's go to number two. The second explanation for Paul's preference for singleness is the ambiguous difficulty. The ambiguous difficulty. Look at the first phrase, the first half of verse 26. He says, I think then that this is, a, this is good in view of the present distress. This, that he calls good, refers to being single or to remain single, unmarried. Now we know he has and will give other reasons for staying single in this chapter. But the reason given in verse 26 is in the NAS this present distress or the crisis in the NIV. Paul doesn't specify what this distress or difficulty is, and biblical scholars have not been able to pinpoint anything in particular. In other words, it's ambiguous to us, but wouldn't have been to the Corinthians, obviously, by the way he mentions it, the Corinthians would automatically agree and say, yes, yes, this, this, whatever is going on is very difficult. As far as we can tell, biblically, he could be talking about general challenges that the Christian would face living in the present world system or something specific that the Christians and possibly even uniquely the Corinthian Christians at that time are going through. We do know at that time that persecution was fierce. We also know that physical famine was going on. And so these are a couple specifics that some scholars have proposed, but we cannot be dogmatic on them. Needless to say, whether general, just being a Christian, a foreigner in this world, in a world that hates our Lord and thus hates us, or something particular in their lives, there is something difficult going on. Now, talking about the general challenges that a Christian faces, this goes back to the reality of being a foreigner, as I mentioned, an alien, a visitor on earth. We talked about this a little bit last week in our Christmas message. Jesus promised his followers in John 16, verse 33, that in the world you have tribulation. Earlier in chapter 15, in the Gospel of John, In verses 18 through 19, he says this. It's the passage I referred to earlier. If the world hates you, he says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, regardless of whatever difficulty they may be facing, and whatever difficulty we may be facing, those truths are the foundation of the difficulties we face. Not just from those who actively hate us because they hate our Lord, but because of the challenges and risks we take in living in a radical way. And when I say radical way, I just mean average, normal Christianity. It is radical. It is radically different than the way the world thinks. Even our definitions of things as simple and commonplace as love and joy and success are radically different. And so there are difficulties in our lives simply because we are adhering to the Scriptures. 
This is on every level of our lives, every aspect of our lives. Whether it's full-time job, full-time staying at home, being a dad, being a child, being a sibling, whatever it may be, being a passenger on BART. All of those things face different challenges because we are not of this world. And as I mentioned last week and will elaborate upon next week, the whole state of affairs in the world for God's people between the first birth and second future coming of Christ, so the birth of Christ and the future second coming, things will get progressively worse for us. That is a promise in Scripture. This is a promise from our Lord Himself, as sure as heaven, as sure as salvation. It is a promise. The world degenerates morally and physically, but we see the degeneration uh, morally, uh, more visibly in our world these days. And, of course, then, we feel the pressures against us as living as Christians in this world because we don't just stay a few steps more moral than the world as they go downhill. We stay firm because the Bible does not change as they get further and further from what we believe and how we behave. I mention all of this despite not knowing what the distress is that Paul is specifically referring to because I don't want you to think that just because we don't know and thus you probably aren't going through the specific issue that the Corinthians may have been going through that you can just chuck this passage out of the Bible and just ignore it and say, well, see, marriage is for me because I'm not going through Roman persecution or whatever it may be. The reality is, and we will see this uh, in all that he says about singleness, not just in our passage this morning, but in a couple weeks, that all difficulties that we have in this world which are increased because of marriage, even godly biblical marriage, it is better to stay single and you have difficulties. You could say that your present distress is being locked up at home and having to work at home while teaching your kids from home. There's always something difficult that highlights our need for Christ and, as we'll see again in the bigger context, extra challenges that you would have if you are married. For those of you who are single and are working from home in a quiet apartment all by yourself or with another roommate who is working from home, you don't have the challenges of distance learning. You don't have the challenges of children interrupting you. You don't have those types of difficulties. You don't even have the challenges of making sure that your children have snacks and meals so that they can last through the school day of distance learning. You don't have a husband or a wife to have to look after and make sure they're happy as well. And so regardless of what the history may tell us or may not tell us, there are challenges with marriage and Christianity in general. And so Paul says it's better to stay single. In other words, The advice that Paul is giving can be principalized in light of any and all difficulties of the world that will be added to and intensified by being married. And so our second explanation for Paul's preference for singleness is the difficulties of Christianity in this world. Let's look at a third. 
And here we get to the actual meat of Paul's instruction, and that is the authoritative directive. Our third explanation for Paul's preference for singleness, again, not just for himself, but for all Christians, is the authoritative directive. Look at the end of verse 26 and through 27. I'll read all of 26 to get the context again. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, what that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. But are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. What Paul is basically saying is stay as you are. Again, the preference, of course, is that a single man stay single. Thankfully, he clarifies that if you are married, you are to stay in and commit to that marriage. Do not seek to be released. In other words, whether your marriage is going well or it's full of challenges, whether you're married to a believer or unbeliever, nothing he says here, in other words, his preference for singleness, is telling you that now you should get a divorce because of this. That's not what he's saying. Of course, he also reiterates in verse 27 that if you are unmarried as a man, you should not seek a wife and vice versa. Remember, this is advice. It is not a command. Although the part about not seeking to get out of your marriage is something we know is commanded in Scripture. And the point he is making here with that statement, however, is not in the context of marital strife and seeking divorce anyway. Rather, it's in the context of clarifying that you are not to pursue Paul's preference of singleness if you are already married. Okay? You've, in, in his preference as the backdrop, you've missed the boat. Okay? You can't do this. You're not allowed to do what I'm suggesting here. So, in light of that, I should explain that that phrase, released from a wife, can refer to any current state of singleness, whether you have been married before or not. In other words, released or free in the ESV simply is a contrast in his writing to bound, the word bound to a wife. In the NIV, it simply says married and unmarried. And this would be a good time to remind you that Paul in the Scriptures holds marriage very highly. In fact, in Ephesians 5, by likening the marriage relationship to the relationship between Christ and the church, he provides the noblest view of marriage. And so don't think that he has a problem with marriage. Don't think that he is somehow uh, trivializing marriage or saying that you can't glorify God in marriage. He holds marriage very highly, obviously, especially, or perhaps even only, within the church. The advice he gives here in 1 Corinthians 7 is a practical but powerful piece of advice. He says, understand and cherish your singleness as being a blessing from God because it has many advantages. And I do want to make a side note here that I probably should have mentioned earlier. This is not a time for those of us who are married to ignore or tune out because you very well may be, though perhaps for just a short time, unmarried, though you are married now when you become a widow or a widower. And 
you definitely, within our wonderfully diverse church that the Lord has blessed us with, interactions with single people. And so if Paul is calling them to cherish their singleness as a blessing from God because of its advantages, we must too, as married people, help them understand even or especially those who find it challenging to be unmarried because they want to be married, to cherish their singleness if even for a time, to see it not as an opportunity to just seek dating, seek marriage, to be discontent, to think that their ministry is somehow hindered, but to encourage them to make the best use of their time. And of course, if you are single, this applies directly to you as you play this out, whether for the rest of your life or for the time that you are unmarried. Next week, we will address the danger of worldliness And one of the examples that Paul gives of being too worldly is actually marriage. Because there is no marriage in eternity, so it is a thing of this temporary world. As wonderful and beautiful and potentially God-honoring as it is, marriage is of this world. It is passing away with the world. This romantic notion people have of romantically reuniting with their spouse who passed earlier than them in heaven, they will reunite as brother and sister in Christ, as fellowship, fellow worshipers of the Lord at His throne, not as husband and wife. And the reason I bring this up is because if you are single and you are preoccupied with your singleness to the degree that you're either consumed with trying to get married or on the other end of the spectrum taking every worldly advantage, worldly advantage of your singleness by focusing only on yourself, then you have taken the subject of marriage, which includes singleness, to an idolatrous and sinful level. And so if all you're doing is trying to get married, that too, frankly, is taking every worldly advantage to be selfish. We need to be careful and have the right view of singleness. Use your time wisely, not just looking for a spouse, not just feeding your flesh. And oftentimes, we we don't recognize this as singles. Because the lessons and the norm, the status quo regarding singleness come more from the world than the church because marriage is the norm in the church. You're a student, you're a youth, you're a college student, and then there's married people. Go to any church that has a singles ministry. It is a very small group. The norm is marriage. And so when you're single... Because you don't have a lot of examples in the church, there's not a norm or a status quo. There is rarely even any instruction for it. You default to doing what the world says. And what the world says to do when you're single is travel, purchase, binge watch. You have time. You have the money. So enjoy it. And they almost feed you with this animosity 
towards the world that, that is married and, and feeds you and says, just be bitter towards marriage and say, forget them. I'm just going to enjoy my singleness. Travel the world. Use my money every dime, every cent. I don't have kids. I don't have a spouse. I'm going to use the money on myself. And that's what the world says. Buy more stuff. Watch your favorite shows. Watch the whole season of your favorite show. Then watch it again next weekend. You got nothing else to do. You don't have work on weekends or in the evenings. You have no responsibilities. Enjoy it while you can. That's what the world says. What a waste. What a loss. What sin. Even without reading this passage, you as a single person know that that's never what Paul would condone. That's never what Christ would condone. All that to say... Singleness is preferred by Paul for its ministry potential, not its pleasure potential, its ministry potential. As Christian singles, you may not do everything that the world does in taking advantage of singleness. You're not sleeping around. You're not getting drunk. You're not experimenting with drugs. But let me ask you this. Singles, is it really any less sinful to take all of your money and all of your time that God has given you and use it only for yourself? I submit to you that it is not. So, if you want to have the right view of the freedom from extra responsibilities that you will have in marriage, then it must be with a view toward service. You have more time. You have more money. You have more energy for God. Stop watching TV till one in the morning and sleeping in every Saturday. Wake up. Serve. Get on your knees and pray. Stop buying all that stuff. Use that money to purchase souls for heaven. You know what I mean by that. Give to missionaries. Buy ads. Go out. Evangelize. Whatever it may be. You know, there's a classic stereotype in the church. And it's, it's, it's still true. It's not one of those stereotypes that's not true. And it is that the church is upheld by the faithful prayers of the grandmother. The grandmother who upholds the church, usually the widow, the retired lady who has more time on her hands, who is always there praying for every little prayer request. A good friend to this church was saved because of the faithful prayers of such a woman. My grandmother-in-law just passed away a few days ago, and there are testimonies flowing in because she was hard of hearing of how people in the retirement home she was in would walk into her room and she wouldn't know they were there because she can't hear them. And she was there moving her lips and with color-coded journal praying for all of the children, all of the grandchildren, all of the spouses, a prayer warrior. It is the grandmother who is always there with a kind word, a well-worn Bible and prayer journal 
and usually something freshly baked to offer you. And as wonderful as that is, in my opinion, that stereotype should not be of grandmothers. It should be of singles in their 20s and 30s. It should be the single people that we know are always praying for us. It should be the single people that we know are always available for us because they have time. It should be the single people who are always driving around the Bay Area, dropping things off, giving the infirmed a hug, if even a a air hug through the window during COVID. These are the people with the time and the energy, which many grandmothers do not have. They should be the ones, you should be the ones, upholding the church in prayer, dropping off encouragements, serving. But instead, far too often, they are playing video games, they are traveling, they are Instagramming, they are watching movies. And as a Christian, when you do that, of course you don't get it when Paul says it's better to remain single. Because you've only filled your singleness with the pursuit of temporal pleasure rather than that which brings eternal joy. So even when your desire to get married, when you have a desire to get married rather, it's all selfish. Because your whole single life you've been selfish. I want to have kids. I don't want to be lonely. I want to have someone to share my life with. I want, I want, me, 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 me. Because it's a natural transition from your singleness of me, 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 me. But when you fill your days of singleness with that which honors God, no matter how badly you may have wanted to get married your whole life, rather than jumping at the opportunity when you have that to get married, you're actually going to think twice. Because you're going to realize that you're going to have to give up some of that Service that has brought you such incredible joy. That ministry that you are engulfed in, you realize will be hindered as you now need to focus on your spouse and family. How do you want to live, singles? Selfishly or for the Lord? Again, it's not wrong to be married. And that leads us to our fourth explanation for Paul's preference for singleness, the alleviating disclaimer. The alleviating disclaimer. Look at the beginning of verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Paul assures us that it's not a sin to get married. We've talked about this extensively, so I don't want to belabor the point. I do want to point out that sin is only defined as sin when you violate a command of God, which we don't have here regarding staying single. And as I've said before, there's nothing in this passage or anywhere else in the Bible that justifies the argument that Paul or God see singleness as superior to marriage. They just don't say it. It's not there. On the flip side, the American Christian culture has created a pressure that makes one think that marriage is the norm and that that singles, particularly older singles, and when I mean 
older, I mean those in their 20s and 30s, are somehow lesser second-class citizens. Not true. Everyone has their place. Everyone has their calling. Everyone has their gift, as we've seen before in 1 Corinthians 7. And we must all use it to God's glory. And we must all encourage one another to use it for God's glory rather than creating this pressure by, uh, in this context, playing matchmaker or giving consolation at a wedding which no one even wants or even feels bad. Oh, don't worry. God will provide. Don't feel bad. And all of a sudden, someone who is never jealous is suddenly thinking, maybe I'm supposed to be jealous. We need to be very careful, friends, single and married. And I know, too, that we can't just sit here as singles and say, yeah, you married, stop pressuring me. I know there are singles in the church, too, who have a nasty view of marriage and those who are married for whatever reason. We need to be careful of that and rejoice in our own place, temporary or lifelong, and rejoice in everyone else's place as well. And with all of that also, these passages that we're looking at are often misconstrued in the modern church and become a source of anxiety for singles rather than comfort. And Part of this may be because we... Christians today, and especially singles, don't really feel like they're going through any sort of, quote, present distress. And so when we read this, we see some sort of shackles that Paul's putting on singles or some sort of rebuke rather than hearing his loving and caring tone that he had for the Corinthians in light of the difficulties that they were going through. Understand, Paul is not trying to make life hard for you. Paul is not trying to increase your loneliness or lack of contentment. He's trying to help you by keeping you from added difficulties in life. And what is the love that he shows here, the affection? We see this in our final explanation for Paul's preference for singleness, the affectionate desire the affectionate desire. We've seen the apostolic disclaimer, the ambiguous difficulty, the authoritative directive, the alleviating disclaimer, and now the point that pulls all of this together, number five, the affectionate desire, the end of verse 28, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Trouble or worldly troubles in the ESV, literally means in the Greek to be pressed together or under pressure. Now, you understand to be under pressure. Pressure comes from something. So, for example, uh, in a mountain, pressure comes from the other rocks, from gravity pushing or pulling on something else to bring together. And the word can mean tribulation. It can mean pressure. It can mean affliction difficulties. And the troubles he is talking about are the difficulties of being a believer that we talked about earlier. And it's not that you won't have these worldly challenges if you are single. So long as you are living faithfully for the Lord, you will face persecution. You will face hardships. We are, again, promised that in Scripture. But when married, 
your difficulties and sins are now, and here's the literal meaning, pressed together with another individual. So if you caught that, I mentioned two types of difficulties that we're now talking about. External worldly pressures that, are, that begin and come from outside of yourself, outside of your marriage, and then there's your own personal sins that come from within you. Of course, one can lead to another. One can make one worse. For example, the pressures of the world can push you to cave in regard, in regards to your convictions and obedience, and so the pressures of the world cause you to have more personal sin. Or your own sin can exacerbate the influence of the world on you in your pride and fear of man. And those are just a couple examples. But I want to take each of these individually. When you are single and under pressure or persecution, and it doesn't have to be persecution, it can just be peer pressure from people actually pressuring you or just the status quo of our sinful world, when all of these come from the world around you, as someone who is unmarried, you can be more free to fight, to take a sacrificial stance. Because the only person you're concerned about is yourself, your personal safety, your own comfort. When married, all your actions now affect your spouse and kids. We all believe, for example, that we would be willing to die for Christ. But you take pause with that idea when you understand it leaves your children fatherless or your husband a widower. Being bold for Christ and knowing you may lose your job is one thing when you're single. It's another thing when you can no longer feed your children or pay their tuition. I'm not saying that you should not do those things. You should still stand up for Christ. But you understand what I'm saying here. Now, that, now there are others involved. You can't just rec- recklessly just say, you know what, like I did when I was single, you know what, I'm going to move to Albania. It wasn't very planned. It was a last-minute thing. Threw a couple suitcases together, and I went and ended up there for several years. I couldn't do that if I was married. I would have to have more goodbyes, more closure. If I had kids, I would have to check out what school systems there were, definitely find a bigger place to live, a safer place to live. But as a single person, I just needed an apartment. That's all. doesn't matter if it was safe or not. doesn't matter how far the walk was. doesn't matter where the, how far the groceries were. didn't matter. Buy a plane ticket and go. And if on that case, I only had to raise a certain amount. I didn't have to raise enough money to support two, three, four, five people. Even outside the mission field, you get it. Someone says, hey, this person needs help. Right? Big storm, roof caved in, things are flooding. They need help moving all their furniture. Or someone is on their deathbed. They ask for people from the church to come and hold hands around them and pray for them. 
as a single, you can say, I'm there. I'll be there in five minutes. Well, let me see. I got to do this. We got to put the kids to bed. We got to find a babysitter. We got to. Not that our convictions and willingness to honor God in any way possible should change, but there's more to consider because there are more that will be affected. You have more responsibilities. Those responsibilities you are to honor God with, but they are still extra responsibilities. Those individuals can and will enter into hardship and suffering because of your decisions. Even decisions for the Lord can have physical, emotional, spiritual consequences on your spouse and children. That's external pressure. Now let's talk about your own sin. Your own sin right now just affects you on earth affects two people, you and God. On a practical level, it mostly affects you. And that is why for many singles, their temptations and their sins in regards to impurity and looking at inappropriate things, just as one example, goes on and gets worse and they pray and repent and then they go back to it because it doesn't affect anyone. It doesn't affect your demeanor to your kids. It doesn't affect how you treat your wife demanding things in the bedroom and things like that. There are other issues involved, though. Yes, the two become one flesh, but you still have two individualities, your own individualities and personalities. Men, single men, if you think that because God has called you to be the leader of the home, that when you get married, she is just going to absorb your personality and can get rid of all of her wants and likes and dislikes, you are out of your mind. That's not biblical at all. That's definitely not leadership. And now, rather than just even in the dating relationship or friendship, the two are one flesh. One flesh with two distinct personalities, two sets of likes and dislikes, two sets of emotions and levels of emotional triggers, and much more. And because of that, you can't just be selfish. You can't just pick the restaurant without consulting. You can't just pick the movie. You can't just up and leave. You can't just turn on the TV and watch watch what you want to watch. You can't just do whatever you want. When our actions only involve ourselves, we don't realize how selfish we are. But now in marriage, those selfish pursuits cause conflict. Conflict. You know why uh, communication is so important in marriage? Because of conflict. You know why you don't need to communicate with yourself when you're single? Because there's no conflict. And even if you hurt yourself and make a poor decision, you're like, well, it just affects me. No big deal. Move on. Muscle through it. Grin and bear it. You can't just grin and bear it when you've hurt your wife, when you've made your husband feel low or shallow or whatever it may be, feel unwanted. Conflict. Add to that, you now have more responsibility. You have more demands. You have more hardships, more sacrifices and arguments that singleness does not. 
And just by way of a few examples, in the literally millions of possibilities, you can't just walk away and avoid your spouse because you get in a disagreement with them. Like you can if you get in a disagreement with a friend or even your parent as an adult. You can just walk away. Even if you live with them, you can just go to your room. You can leave, go to your own apartment. No problem. You have to work it out when you're married. Specific instruction on that in Scripture. You can't just relax when you're married and do whatever you want during your free time. In fact, I could argue that if you are married and have free time, you're not doing marriage right. And please don't think for a second that just because you get married that you will never be lonely or that you will not struggle with lust or more for the women seek someone to want you and give you attention. In fact, not only will those things happen, they will be worse because in your mind, in married to a Christian, that shouldn't happen, and yet it happens. And so the loneliness is actually deeper. The lust and the wanting is perhaps not worse, but it's more guilt-ridden and affects you more. These things that you would do as a single to alleviate those things, right? just up and leave and go hang out with some friends or go do something sinful and inappropriate to indulge your lust, oh, those are a big no-no now. You cannot do those. You can't do those now as a single in a sinful way, but you definitely can't do that when you're married. Sins are now more sinful when it comes to temptations of lust. Recreational fellowship to alleviate loneliness can't be just pursued at a drop of a hat. You're not alone anymore. You have someone else to consider. And what Paul is saying is that because of all of these things, it is better to be single than to have these added troubles and human lives with all of that, the emotions, the physical needs. Now, in your sphere, not of fellowship, not of friendship, not of acquaintance, but in your sphere of responsibility, men and women, These people are now your responsibility. And out of love and Spirit-inspired wisdom, Paul is trying to spare believers from all of this. And I understand that in our church, most of the singles desire to be married. But I would encourage you because of this passage, to think twice. To consider maybe that staying single is for you. Now, we have seen in this chapter what, if it exists in your life, should automatically disqualify you from seeking singleness for your whole life. But even if it's just for a couple more months because you're engaged, a few more years, if you desire to be married or whatever it may be, I would still take these principles and use them. 
you can't say, well, marriage is for me, and then say, well, because of that, I can use my singleness selfishly. No. You still need to use your singleness in the way that we're talking about so that when you do get married, if you do get married, you have already established a pattern of selflessness that's going to make your marriage work. That's also why you need to make sure you are dating the right person and dating the right person in the right way. You know, we focus so much on being pure in dating relationships, and and that's good. You need to be pure. But my friends, you need to be working on communication. You need to be working about encouraging one another to love and good deeds. You need to be working on having uh, communication, not just about problems and what marriage should look like, but on just being a brother and sister in Christ. Are you just laughing and joking and having a good time, or are you bringing joy into the picture by encouraging one another biblically, by rebuking one another biblically? Don't just grin and bear it because you really like that girl or like that guy. You need to biblically address sin when sin occurs in dating relationships. You're supposed to do that with people you're not dating. You're supposed to do that with me. You definitely should be doing it if you think you're going to marry that girl or that guy. Do these things right. Well, to the point of the passage, five explanations for Paul's preference for singleness. The apostolic disclaimer, this is not a command, it is advice, but is spirit-inspired advice. The ambiguous difficulty, although we can principalize that to just difficulties in general for Christians. The authoritative directive to it is better to remain single. The alleviating disclaimer, it is not sin to get married, to be married, to pursue marriage. And the affectionate desire out of Paul's understanding and wisdom, out of love, For the church and for God, he says, I'm trying to spare you guys. I entitled this sermon, Saving Singleness. And I didn't mean that just in the sense that Paul is redeeming the idea of singleness. But singleness saves. It saves you from these added difficulties in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for how you have blessed us in every stage of life. And I just pray that we, whether we are married or single, would use whatever position you have put us in, including uh, our, our current financial and living and uh, vocational situations, our family situations, whether we're living with our spouse and children, where we're living just with our spouse, whether we're living alone, whether we're living with our parents, whoever it may be, whatever we may be and wherever you have put us in, may we do all selflessly, maximizing our time and resources for your glory. Give us a better and biblical understanding of singleness. I pray that our preconceived notions, our frustrations would always be measured against your word, Help us remove the worldly views of singleness and what singles should do. Help us to remove even what we may have thought were biblical views but have proven to be unbiblical. Continue to grow us as a church to encourage one another in these regards. In Jesus' name, amen.